We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Hello and welcome to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. American Warrior Radio is coming to you from the Silencer Central Studios. Begin your journey by visiting SilentCentral.com to earn if only a silencer is legal in your state. Their experts will work with you to find the right suppressor for your needs, complete the paperwork, and then ship right to your front door. At SilencerCentral.com, they make silence simple. Unless you serve there, you probably haven't ever heard of the Argandav River Valley. I sure hadn't. The river flows through the Ganzi province in south-central Afghanistan. The valley has claimed many lives, from Alexander the Great on up to the Russians. Our American troops who served there called it the meat grinder. No one has entered that valley and left unscathed. Today's guests served there with the 1st Platoon Bravo Company's 2nd Battalion, 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 82nd Airborne. Today he is going to share the story of his comrades during a deployment from 2009 to 2010. During that time, his unit suffered a 52% casualty rate. That deployment is the subject of his book, Damn the Valley. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, Will Yeski. Good to be here. Now, Will, you uh, attended the School of Falling, apparently. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that is definitely paratrooper school down in Benning. As I understand it, you wanted to join the Green Berets, and that didn't quite work out, but you ended up in the 82nd Airborne serving in Afghanistan. Yeah, that's kind of how the pathway works with what they use within the contract, and there's actually a lot of the guys that end up going through jump school towards that through the civilian program. It's called the uh, 18X program. That's the designation they put towards it. And... They go through, you know, your airborne pipeline because that's what all the special operations have involved in it is uh, you have to go through airborne school. You have to be airborne qualified. And I think some of that has to do with the fact of facing that fear of jumping from a perfectly good airplane, you know, and they become a, a little bit of indoctrinated into the cult. But when you go back and look at it from a scientific standpoint and from a mental standpoint, you're ingraining these instances to where you're doing something that's unnatural for your body to do. You're jumping from an aircraft and with that you're getting cortisol spikes and with that you're getting those that same type of adrenaline spike that you would from you know from a combat type situation. So I went uh, my path led me through you know your standard basic training and then airborne school and uh, I went for I got hurt actually within the um preparatory class. It's called uh, SUPSI, so Special Operations Preparatory and Conditioning, and got hurt during one of the land nav portions of that and was in holdover to attend the next selection class. And what had happened there was the command sergeant major came down and he said, there's too many malingerers, which there, in all honesty, there really was. There was like 400 some odd people in med hold at that time. And they just Instead of going through, they just cut everybody. You know, I, I tried an appeal. There was no talking to them at that time. And it was just, you know, it was on to the 82nd, which ultimately and honestly, I thought um, it was a blessing. It was a great unit. And kind of in going forward, I, I mean, after after the time period of this book and stuff, I went forward and going back through selection afterwards, it was a different ball game. 
Yeah, folks can learn more, visit damnthevalleybook.com. Well, I I don't want to say I enjoyed your book because, well, it was kind of like taking your vitamins. It's it's necessary to read, but it, it was it was hard for a civilian like me, for someone who supports the minimum of the military, to to see those unvarnished, you know, cold hard facts of you and your your unit service there in, in Afghanistan. Now, I will say I have a lot of veteran authors on the show as well, and it's not very often I hear about a book that was actually inspired or motivated by another book. You really didn't want to write this story. I I didn't. This was something that was really 10-plus years in the making, kind of ruminating in the back of my head. And there was another author that came forward during, you know, an, uh, an event that's actually mentioned in that book, Operation Resiliency to where this organization, the Independence Fund, started this um, this project to where they would bring in hard-hit units. And this was actually the pilot program was for our unit. And that was mainly because of um, some of the people that were involved, the CEO of that particular organization that personally knew them. And they were like, we really have to do something about, about the situation here, about the suicide situation with these guys and some of the mental health problems. So this Operation Resiliency was held, and while it was there and what was going on with everything with that was there was a Wall Street Journal writer by the name of Ben Kessling there who wrote an article about this pilot program and about the things that these guys in the unit had been through. And then fast forward from there, I think it was a year or so to where he had a book publisher approach him about it and say, hey, this sounds like a really interesting situation to write about. Would you be willing? And he kind of hemmed and hawed about it himself and was like, ah. And he put something down. Uh, I had actually interviewed with him, and I show up in that book. And that one's up, Bravo Company by Ben Kessling. And I thought, you know, personally, I thought it was a pretty good book. And, you know, really he had written it to inspire other people uh, to make a change within their own lives and inspire some change within the in the veterans affairs system. But for the guys that were there they kind of felt that it fell short, you know, whether it was marginalized from the fact that it didn't cover everybody in it or just the plain fact that the author wasn't someone who had been there and, and experienced it alongside of them. I guess a lot of it was probably left out because there were guys that just didn't want to talk to him because he was a journalist, you know, and where it was a little different when I kind of started calling the guys and going around and said, Hey, you know what? I hear that some of you have issues with this book. What's, what's your problem? You know, what's the issue? And it was whether, you know, they didn't include everybody or they didn't really get the full feel or they were a paratrooper. And I'm like, well, this guy is still, I mean, he's, this is probably the best shot of your story. And it became quickly clear that unless it was one of us that put something down, that it was never going to happen. So I kind of held myself to the fire and wrote something together. I actually contacted Mr. Kessling first and said, Hey, what do you, what do you think? You've heard my end of the story. Does, is it something that deserves merit? Should I put it down? And he encouraged me to, you know, and, and here we are a year later after putting pen to paper and, you know, putting the book down and, you know, here's the book published by Casemate, Damn the Valley. And um, it's been really good for a lot of those guys. And as you said before, you know, as a civilian reading this end and some of the horrors that were seen on that particular battle space. This is not just some run-in-the-mill unit. This is some pretty highly trained, you know, combat infantrymen. 
with that type of experience of, you know, that, that airborne experience to where I don't want to say that it's a cut above the rest, but quite honestly, when you experience something on the battlefield, you can definitely tell the difference. You can tell the difference between, you know, units like that compared to uh, some of the other line units that are out there. Now, Will, tell us about the cover of the book. That's got an interesting story behind it all by itself. What had happened there was 2nd Platoon was staying down in a town. Really, that was the epicenter of where a lot of the issues were coming from. A little town by the name of Diakashe. And they were staying in one of the Afghan compounds down there. Uh, the area was so saturated that our platoons were separated. And they exploded a 1,000-pound uh, vehicle bomb. You know, they tried to get as close as they could to it, and as soon as, you know, it was, uh, they started to take fire from the from the guys in the guard tires, they detonated this thing. And it leveled, I mean, nearly leveled the whole place, but a good amount of it. Guys were buried alive and whatnot. And after they kind of pulled out our guys, and then they kind of recovered the dead Afghan children that had perished within there, they were going through and they saw the flag, you know, underneath the rubble as well, and it didn't sit right. This picture was snapped as they were pulling that flag up out of the ground there underneath those rocks. And I, somebody, whoever snapped this, it was just wild to see because they snapped it in sequence. Yeah. And you can see it being pulled out. Listen, we've got to take a break real quick. We come back, we can talk more about that. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We're joined by Will Yeski. The book is Damn the Valley. You can learn more at damnthevalleybook.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're speaking with Will Yeski. Will is a veteran of the 82nd Airborne, uh, had a one-year deployment. And the and I, I, pronounce that valley for me, Will, to make sure I'm getting it right. Is it Argondob? Argondob? You had it right. Yeah, Argondob. Close enough. Okay. Sounds like something out of a Lord of the Rings book. But um, that's it. I tell you, we were talking about your book and, and just the – it's – it's a very powerful read, and I encourage the folks. Uh, it's it's going to be hard for civilians, and I, I would guess even for some of your comrades, uh, it probably brings back some memories, some thoughts that they wish they they didn't have to experience again. But uh, you know, the cover of the book is I, I didn't get it until I got to the point where you described where that that image came from, and I sorry I interrupted you, but um, go on with that story. So they they pulled this this U.S. flag out of the the rubble after a bombing uh, absolutely horrendous bombing this is something to where i was a mile away at a separate compound manning the tactical operations center so basically where our radios and everything where all our communications gear and we were one of three postings so first platoon was a little bit closer to town and we would do a lot of the the radio traffic from that end and would act as a relay for a lot of the patrols Headquarters and 3rd Platoon were down the road at Cop Ware, and then 2nd Platoon was the one that was placed in this town. But from over a mile away when this bomb went off, the door to the tactical operations center there, it was just a plywood hut, basically. I mean, the door blew open because of the overpressure 
and I ran over to the door and looked outside, and what I saw was almost like a, what you would describe as a doomsday-type moment. I mean, you had a literal mushroom cloud rising from the town in the distance, and it was like that strike of horror to where you you know that was probably them. It was probably one of the, you know, that particular platoon that was out there that was hit, but in what capacity? Was it the base? Was it a patrol that was out? There's no way that somebody didn't come out of that thing not being hurt because it was just massive. And hearing that perspective and hearing that story from that angle, it was actually, I told it from the angle of um, Brian Erickson who was there, you know, within second platoon, but Brian was actually one of the original first platoon guys. He, he was traded over to second at one point. You know, and this was a guy that was from, he had been in 9-11. He was actually a New Jersey firefighter that had jumped on one of the buses to go into New York City on a, a, a city bus that was commandeered by the NYPD. You know, and then he finds himself later here once again, but in Afghanistan on the battlefield, uh, pulling the American flag out of this rubble from where they were just attacked um, and hoisting that thing back up to kind of show them you know, you you can you can hit us, you can knock us down, but we're here to stay. That yeah, that's a very powerful message. And I one thing that I I definitely took from the book because so often knuckleheads like me they think well they're just a bunch of backwards Afghan tribesmen. You know why where are we not having more success there? Well, but I mean these are generations upon generations who fought war against superpowers. I, I even Alexander the Great, the superpower of the day. And these guys are no dummies. You know, I mean, a lot of these fears and stuff, and I talked about it in the book, too, were guys you would find showing up on these um, biometric systems as having been in Iraq and Pakistan and, and other areas. Like, they literally were just following us for a fight. Absolutely wild. Describe the valley for us, because I find it, I guess, maybe part of the the reason for that, as you said, it's almost like going back to, to biblical times. Here's a guy, you know, in his, his robe, you know, walking a, a donkey through the valley, you know, bringing in water or whatever, and you're thinking, man, that this must have been what it looked like back, you know, in 250 B.C., but then you notice, if you're closer, he's wearing Nikes. Um, and and it, the other thing, too, is just strikes with just the... the the starkness of the environment in which you and your comrades were living and patrolling and fighting, uh, you described one situation where you're on a patrol or someone's on a patrol and they're literally looking down on helicopters because you were higher than the ceiling at which the helicopters themselves could function. Yeah, it's just the you had everything in that terrain, you know, to where we were in this valley, this lush, farmed river valley that, I mean, you could even see on a map of Afghanistan, it's just very green through that area. In the winter, it turns, you know, everything bleaks out and it just turns into a big mud pit. But uh, when you have the mountainous terrain like that, and then you have the cover of the orchards, and then just everywhere in between these huge, you know, between eight and 10 foot walls that block off all the different parts of terrain, Plenty of places to hide, you know, just very formidable territory where you were staying on, on top of that mountaintop there. Yeah, we had to put guys up on a, an observation point 
and they would watch over the patrols that would cross underneath in the valley for the sheer reason that, you know, you look at uh, even Kandahar Airfield. What they would do is the Taliban would sneak up the mountain uh, overnight and set time charges, you know, very rudimentary stuff that would shoot these rockets off, and they wouldn't even really be aimed. It was just kind of a, hey, you know what, this is a roundabout what it's going to be. Kandahar is so big, we're just going to get something with this. Like, who who really cares? It's just a, uh, you know, a deterrent or something that's psychologically going to mess with these guys. And they just set them off, you know, day after day after day. So we had to put our guys up there, not only to keep watch over patrols below, which came in a lot of handy, but you have patterns of life. You don't want people coming up the backside of the mountain. There's so many ends to warfare to think about and to have to deal with the people that are have been ingrained within this populace. They can move pretty freely within there. Um, that's a... You know, growing up reading books about Vietnam and hearing the struggles there, it's the same thing. Same exact, you're fighting that same type of warfare out there. This is, yeah, the nobody's wearing uniforms except for you, except for the good guys. Uh, and I mean the local police, maybe, and the, the Afghan army. But, I mean, this is a case study for the fog of war. Uh, you know, is that a bad guy trying to penetrate the wire? Or is it just some tribal elder trying to get his goat free? you know, from, from the wire. That is, is the coin mission and stuff that was put out there is to get to know, and that's why we were ingrained within these villages and stuff and working alongside of the locals and, like, being so close to all these areas is that very fact that you had to know the people that were there and the people that belonged there because it was very easy, you know, once that's the case, you could spot what an outlier was or what a, a different pattern of life was or, hey, that guy doesn't own these fields. What's he doing out here? Mm-hmm. I tell you, well, in the next segment, I want to talk a little bit about my words, not yours, but that area was almost kind of the the Silicon Valley for improvised explosive devices. I mean, they were everywhere, and they they improved their tactics, and you saw that even while you were there. Ladies and gentlemen, as long as we repeat their names, they're no longer forgotten. Specialist Jason Johnston, Staff Sergeant Scott Brunkhurst, Specialist Joseph Karen, Specialist Christopher Moon, Staff Sergeant Alan Thomas. Sergeant Derek Hill, Sergeant Jason Spotted Horse. Those are the names of some of the comrades that our guests today, Will Yeske, lost in that, that valley, the subject of Damn the Valley and just the meat grinder. Don't forget you can find this podcast and hundreds of others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. Please share these important stories with your friends. We'll be back with more with Will Yeske in just a minute. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buber-Garcia. We're coming to you from the Silencer Central studios. Begin by visiting silencercentral.com to learn if owning a silencer is legal in your state. Their experts will then work with you to find the right suppressor for your needs, complete the paperwork, and then ship it right to your front door. At Silencer Central, they make silence simple. We're speaking with Will Yeske. He's got a book out called Damn the Valley. It's a very, very powerful read. It's going to be, uh, like I said, I'll, I'll caution you if you're a civilian like me, it's it's not going to be an easy read. You'll be exposed to some things that you hadn't really thought about. Uh, Will, I read those names of, of some of your comrades that were lost there. Do you know Christopher Moon's backstory? 
but I know a little bit of it uh, just due to he was with us when we were in Helmand Province. Uh, says him and uh, Sergeant Rush as a sniper team. And then later on, they, he actually moved to Charlie Company that was across the river from us to where they were experiencing, you know, just these hellacious firefights day after day. Mm-hmm. We've had his mother on, uh, his Gold Star mom on the show before. And, I mean, this young man was an outstanding athlete in high school and basically walked away from a Major League Baseball contract to serve our nation and and gave his life. So just a, a very powerful story there. When I look at these images, and, you know, on social media very often, there's a lot of authors on social media that do nothing but post photos of, of the fallen, and, and, you know, along that idea of as long as, you know, we repeat their names, they're not forgotten. And when I read the little profile paragraph, IED, 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 I mean, these things were just the bane of your existence there in the valley, and you even describe, when you, we talk about them evolving their tactics, you even describe what you call like a little assembly line for planting IEDs that I'd never heard before. Describe to us what they were doing over there. If somebody was carrying the entire piece of what they were doing, you know, it's very obvious what's going on there. A lot of times what they would do is under the cover of night, you could use two or three people, but they would lay things in in broad daylight. And how they would or do that is they'd have somebody either come by as a scout and sort of see, okay, yep, it's clear. And then next guy would come by maybe carrying a shovel and would just drop where the hole needs to be dug. And then someone else would come through, you know, filter through later on, might dig something. It's just a hole. So, you know, you're like, all right, it's possible something's going on here. But you wouldn't, it wouldn't really catch your attention because how hard is it? You know, somebody who's going to dig a small hole to place something in or and place something in, if it's in plan, it's it's going to go very quickly. And that's just how they would do it. It was almost like you just said, an assembly line is probably the best way to put that. But really, they were masters in that craft in the way of they had a system to put things in, but they also knew how to just work off of, you know, human psychology. It was almost in talking with some of the... Um, EOD techs, so explosive ordnance disposal guys that we would have out there with us. There was one in particular, uh, Gregory Pauly, and he was somebody who had seen this from the beginning. It was 2001, I think, is when he entered that particular field in service, and he's still, you know, in, but it's him talking about how he's seen IEDs progress. The things that these guys were doing, it wasn't that the bombs were so complex or whatnot, like the triggering mechanisms or anything like that. that. That wasn't too wild in what they were doing. It was actually very simple, but that's the fact on why it was so effective, is it was a very simple mechanism, but on how they emplaced it and how they would use the line of the terrain, you know, or the cut of uh, the orchards and stuff or the certain footpath they would put it on was, you know, genius and diabolical all at the same time. You know, going from low-tech, if you will, to high-tech, one of the things that made me chuckle a little bit, although I shouldn't as a taxpayer, you know, they, they, some people consider Iraq, Afghanistan to be our first, you know, high-tech war. But you describe in the book where high-tech is not always useful, and they sent you these radio jamming backpacks. Ostensibly, we're supposed to jam the signals so the, the IEDs and the mines wouldn't go off, but they were causing so many other problems that, Allegedly, I'm just saying allegedly, 
uh, some patrol leader took everybody through a river and had them kneel long enough for those jammers to short circuit and then problem solved, huh? No, it it happened for sure. It happened for sure. <laughs> that was kind of some of the things that you would find, especially from the infantry perspective, was that, you know, here you are trying to become more and more, I guess, not ingrained, but uh, familiar with the territory you're in. You're trying to get in that local mindset, be in tune with your atmosphere and environment around you. So they're good idea fairies are sending you things like they sent us this x-ray machine that could see through walls but it's like a 40 pound thing like what are you going to do strap that to somebody's back who already has an 80 pound combat load you know and they gave us these backpacks that quite honestly um you know there's even as carrying the radio those things emit a certain radio frequency that they only allow an RTO to do the job for around six to eight months, and that's it. Because of the amount of frequency and whatnot that it puts out, there's like, ah, there's a cancer risk there. Mm. You know, so then you have these other backpacks that have improved IED defeat mechanisms that are putting out massive amounts of RF to the point to where guys were getting headaches wearing them. Um, and it was finally that point to where we're leaving, and one of these kids... He has a headache, but he's like, hey, I don't feel so good. And he turns around, and he's got, like, a bloody nose. And that was kind of that point of, that's it. We're done with these. And I know that we're under orders, and the way that this company works, they're going to continue to make us to wear them. So we're going to have to render them unserviceable to be able to go forward. <laughs> And that's exactly what happened there. Well, I'm glad you're out. And, and not just that, you know, you describe, you know, just basic details of, of staying clean and how often you could take a shower. And don't get me started on the uh, waste disposal systems. I'll, I'll use that kind term there. But, but, you know, on occasion, again, just sometimes you, the patrol would be directed through a river just to get some time and some water to get cleaned up a little bit and just, just stuff that, you know, again, we don't think about because you don't, you don't see that very often in the in the movies, they don't they don't share that with us. Well, um, and then of course the other thing that really struck me, real quick, we've got about just two minutes for the next break, will. But uh, the critters, yeah, I never thought about that. You're up on a mountain outpost looking for bad guys, and next thing you know, you're being stalked by a bear or a mountain lion. I mean, nothing in basic prepares you for it. There's one dog though that I like. There's a dog that adopted you guys, who just seemed a good soul, Bowser. Um... And I don't know why and how that nickname came about, but Bowser was a heck of a dog. I was never, I was never a dog person until that. And it really was. It's exactly what you said. It, it was like an old soul trapped in the body of a dog. And, you know, he was the, he was the king of the area. You know, there was a particular patrol we were out, you know, and he would just follow us quiet as quiet could be, would never, you know, interrupt anything or whatnot. But there was one night where the entire village, you know, they would use uh, dogs as lookouts. So the entire village is full of dogs, and they're all barking off. We're like, man, we can't sneak up on this thing at all. And that, he reared back and let out just this huge, just one loud bark. And the entire landscape just went totally quiet. It was the weirdest thing I'd ever experienced. And it was just like he, it was like we had the, the king of dogs alongside of us on this thing. And um, now everybody loved you know, he was just a, he was a good pup. Do you know whatever happened to Bowser? 
I do, like through this whole project, somebody from the unit that uh, took over for us, uh, he kind of continued to go out with them on patrol. And at one point they hit an IED um, that not only, you know, took out one of the guys, but it Bowser was hit with some shrapnel from that particular one. And he ended up limping back the outpost with the guys and they couldn't do anything for him, you know, at, at that point there. So he ended up having to go down. Just for yeah, I know so many instances of just different things like that over there to where uncovering uh, the depth of how far this thing reached and how many people this affected, um, you know, and even animals, you know, in this case. Well, well that, that's what I want to spend the last segment talking about because just the, the after effects yeah. are so powerful, too. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Gila Garcia, here on American Warrior Radio. We're talking with Will Yeski. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Weird Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We're talking with Willie Yeski. He's retired from the United States Army, served with the 82nd Airborne. He's got a book out called Damn the Valley. You can learn more of it at damnthevalleybook.com. Well, I find it ironic not the right word, but you were inspired, you were pushed to write your book because of another book that didn't quite complete the story, if you will, and, and from the, your perspective and the perspective of some of your comrades. And that book was about the after effects of Bravo Company's deployment. And I really, I think the part of your book that I, I spent the most time with was, was at the end there when you were talking about the after effects upon you and your comrades and, you know, just basic stuff like the numbness that you felt when you were out there in the civilian world again and the challenges of of making that transition and and yeah you know, suicide you know something we talk about all the time um tell us briefly about that if you could describe that space you were in at that point in time my own thing to where i was really becoming numb from everything and isolating you know self isolating from society and really quite honestly you know, when you come down to it, I, I didn't care so much. It wasn't that I was trying to go down the path of suicide myself, but it was just a what's what's the point of it, not seeing the way forward, losing that purpose end of things, um, and just sort of being on that in-between of floating. And, you know, a few different instances, but really the first was, you know, the chapter there where I talk about driving my car at 100-plus miles an hour down back roads in North Carolina in the middle of the night, you know, and just not caring what happened. You know, I had training um, and everything from previous, from the military. I raced cars, so it was a little little different on my end from that. But at the same time, the, the things I was doing was just asking for something wrong to happen. And mm. eventually it did, but it wasn't me that it happened to. It actually was another a young soldier that tried to follow my particular line, you know, that I was taking down this road. And he went skipping off into the woods. And thankfully, his car had a roll cage in it, or that thing would have been split in half. And, you know, he wouldn't have made it. But as I ended up pulling him out of this wreck, 
you know, it was realizing, I realized very quickly that, you know, my actions affect other people as well and the people around me. And I really needed to get, get my act together, you know, and that's what led me going down one path. And then additionally, you know, in getting out, one of the things that I kind of see across the board and I see with a lot of the guys is, uh, you know, the gaining weight and a lot of physical health problems and stuff. It's almost like they seem to get out of the service and they, you know, blow up X amount of pounds. You know, it's usually around the 50, 50 pound range, which is crazy. Mine was around, what, 75. And that's wow. when certain Jason Spotted Horse, he actually, I got the news back about him and just some of the elements that we were exposed to over there, he ended up coming down with Luke Gehrig's. And seeing a healthy, uh, you know, this just barrel of a man waste away to where he couldn't even speak for himself, you know, besides whispering something so that somebody could put something in the chat box back. Um, seeing that really brought me into my knees and said, hey, man, like, you were exposed to the same stuff. You need to get it together. And... Within a year's time, you know, I mean, put that weight off, but started sharing with other people those healthy habits and that mentality um, and cutting out, you know, processed foods and living living better, but also being involved in the community. Tell me about Rally for the Troops then. Um, Rally for the Troops was actually something that as I was leaving the military, I had a rally car that I had never, you know, it wasn't, um, I kind of brought it around with me. It was almost like baggage from the past that I had brought around uh, and, and had this like $80,000 Subaru rally car sitting in there. And it was uh, one of my, one of the guys I had deployed with, uh, Barry Pilcher, he knew someone in town that was looking at getting into rally and he knew I had this car and I was like, well, have him come take a look at it. And that's kind of how I met the, the founder, you know, of Rally for the Troops, but it was a, we love as veterans, we love automotive stuff. We love racing. We love cars and everything. He started getting these groups together to go to these races and to be part of the pit crew and to kind of create these small pockets of community around it to where the guys had something to look forward to and move forward into racing for heroes to where, again, the racing side of it is there and the showing up, you know, to these different events and whatnot is there but it is about creating that healthy peer group around you and having guys you can reach out to within the community and within your, your space, you know, with questions, which further led to something else from one of the other guys that was there um, that was essentially, you know, Zoom chats with guys, but during COVID to where we saw such a spike in the, the veteran suicide rate to where it was, it was just a necessary thing, you know, where it was, hey, let's get the guys up and talking, you know, and that was veterans peer peer groups mm-hmm. and getting these guys in another. And it was, it was like they, there's that instant connection there. There's that instant rapport. And with a lot of those guys, it was like you'd never, you'd just left the other day, you know, and it was so good to hear, hear from those guys, but then also to hear back some of the stuff like, hey, well, what's, what's going on in your life right now as a challenge. And a lot of those guys would not have any issue with bringing that stuff forward. And more times than not, somebody else in that particular group would be like, Hey, let me talk to you on the side because I've experienced this myself before. 
you know, people that are just looking out for one another. It's such a good thing, and it's a great thing to be part of. I got to tell you, Will, this is coming from, again, a knucklehead civilian from the outside, but I've done this long enough to where I feel I could I could serve as a translator, and I, I believe that at the end of the day, um, the solution to veteran suicide has to come from other veterans themselves. Like you were saying there, with, with this book, for some of the instances that are mentioned in it are just things that are tough to hear from a civilian standpoint, and that's kind of another end of this book. This thing is not just, it was originally meant for the guys that were over there on the ground and stuff to have something to put on their shelf. You know, that's, this is what dad did or your granddad did, you know, and that flag we were saying from the cover that's down in a museum, now part of the DOD historical archives, along with a bunch of other stuff. Um, Airborne and Special Operations Museum in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Um, and to be able to push this thing to that level but then to see these guys coming around it and reopening up about their traumas. I know we had talked before about uh, some of these guys, and, and this actually did happen. Some of them have contacted me. Hey, I'm experiencing cravings, or hey, I'm experiencing smells from the Argandabla as I'm reading this. But in opening and facing that again, it is doing some good in that regards. And I tell you, well, something else that you touched on there at the end is is – something I feel very strongly about, and that is you allude to the impression or the, the falsehoods out there that people have of the, the, you know, crazy combat veteran who's just this, you know, this far away from snapping and going full Rambo, when in fact, veterans, you and your peers are are a huge resource in our communities. And, and I think you actually said that veterans are, are in a perfect place to help navigate America out of the rough patch that the, we're in. Because veterans, at the very least, they know what right looks like, and that's half the battle. We've got just about a minute left, if you could maybe expound on that point a little bit. Exactly what you said right there is that at one time or another uh, in our career, it may not have been the whole career, it probably wasn't, but at one point or another, you have a leader that you can literally say, that person defined leadership for me. And... Really, I, I feel that we kind of owe it, especially in this day and age and the situation that we're in now in America, is that, you know, there's a, a lack of leadership, you know, across the board. It's not just it's not just from like the top, but it goes all the way down to us. And it, it really is something to where we we've seen what it looks like and we need to be that example. And we need to, in whatever capacity it is, step up, you know, and start showing other people that, hey, this this is what being a dad looks like, or this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go forward and I'm going to be a coach. I'm going to show these other kids. I'm going to be a good example. And really, I, I feel like we owe it. And we really already have that purpose built into us. Agreed. You're, you're spot on. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I'll do everything I can, Will, to help promote that concept. Well, thanks for spending time with our listeners today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been great. I really appreciate it. Again, folks, visit damnthevalleybook.com. I encourage you to read this book. It's very, very powerful. Don't forget to share these stories with your friends and comrades. Until next time, all policies and procedures will remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform. 